Blog Talk Radio. Witches. I am your host, Raina Starr, and today we have an amazing author, but before we get to our amazing guest, I need to thank my sponsor, Desperate House Witches, is brought to you by the one, the only, the incredibly wicked one herself, the amazing Dorothy Morrison. Check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. She is currently having her limited edition candle sale, and uh, it's got all your favorites, St. Dorothy the Wicked, Rich bitch, she's got her candles rocking out. So if you need any, check out wickedwitchstudios.com. Um, also, for those of you who are new to the show, Desperate House Witches is not a GPG or even an R-rated show. So if bodily functions, bad language, dirty talk of any kind might offend you, this may not be the show for you. But I think today's show is kind of for everybody because it's a subject we don't talk about. Today, I am fortunate enough to have the author of Do I Have to Wear Black, Mortellis. Hi, Mortellis. How are you? Hi. And same Hi. same stuff, different day, you know? <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. So, you know, I was talking to you a little bit before the show about your book, and I think... You know, I was told I was going to die at the age of 17. I was diagnosed with a chronic condition that I was told in my family is terminal. So I've kind of had death around me for a really long time. But I was thinking this morning about how life and death, like birth and death, are so similar because you don't know what was going on before it. You only know what's happening once you're in it. And I kind of feel the same way about death, even though I really don't have a lot of experience being on that side of things. And I was just wondering, you know, you took on this amazing profession in your daily life and, you know, you're sharing all of this information with those of us who haven't been exposed to it. And I just wonder what what it's like to be you know, someone who deals with the dead in your daily life and as a pagan person? Well, first, I have to say to call it a profession is probably an overestimation of uh, my ability to draw a paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) I've always worked with death and uh, from volunteer work on to, well, yet more volunteer work. I finished mortuary school and went directly into a pandemic. So, I uh, yeah. I couldn't call it a career. I couldn't even call myself licensed. But you know, I'm out there doing the doing the work. <laughs> but, right. Um, you still manage to get out there and do it. You know, and at a time <laughs> where you're so needed, must be somewhat overwhelming. You know, with a pandemic. It is. It, it is but I'm glad to help where I can. And uh, it, it, you ask a really interesting question though, because it's. It's hard sometimes. I, I often find myself getting asked a question or I'm doing something and I have to really draw a line between Mortellus the clergy person who's interacting with death in that way or Mortellus the mundane person who's working in a prep room. And sometimes they share space, but sometimes they don't. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, working with death as as a coven leader as as clergy. I, I know not everybody likes pagan folk to refer to themselves as that, but, it, you know, it's a useful word sometimes. Um, it is. It's, uh, it's it's different. I think that in, in so many ways, we're really called to be universalists, especially people who want to lead covens or teach or um, have a calling to do community work and that sort of thing. You, you can't just walk into. I can't. I can't walk into a prep room or a hospital room or a hospice and only be 
Martellus the Gardenarian. I can't do that mm-hmm. because yeah. there's such a small percentage of pagans in the United States that, you know, I might get called by hospice because they have a pagan person, but to them, pagan is anyone who isn't a Baptist. So I have yeah. to have an understanding of so many things. I have to be able to serve you know, the Druid in front of me or uh, the heathen in front of me or or whatever. So I, I think that's a really interesting challenge to be confronted with when you work with death because you you really have to have this broad awareness. Yeah. Which is amazing that you're able to do that and, you know, that you went. Because I don't think a lot of folks in your position think in those terms, I think. You know, there's a lot of assumption that the body in front of you or the person in front of you is going to be of a Judeo-Christian path. And there's so much more out there. And other folks are just not... They're not geared for it. They don't think about it. I think they are um, unable to deal with that kind of a concept. So the fact that you wrote this book, I think, first of all, I think it should be everywhere because you make a horrible assumption if you assume everybody's of a Judeo-Christian path. Um, And I think this book is really instrumental in catering to you know, folks like us who don't often have that luxury in a hospital where there's necessarily somebody who can come and, and is on call, you know. So I think this book is, mm-hmm. is going to be extremely helpful for families and friends of folks. I mean, you don't have to be a pagan to appreciate this book or, or actually need it if you have a pagan in your life and you care about what happens if something were to happen, um, I, I just think this is the most useful tool. And, you know, before we went on air, I actually admitted to Mortellus that as somebody of, of an older age, you know, I felt such a sense of relief getting this book because I'm the only practicing gardenarian in my family. So the fact that if something happens to me, there is now this wonderful guidebook um, to help my family get through and make decisions is quite a relief for me. So I'm I'm especially passionate about this book, having been diagnosed as a, with a terminal disease as a child and still somehow managing to be here. Uh, for me, it's kind of cool that, yeah, I held out long enough to get this book in my hands. So I'm very grateful for it. And I think a lot of people um, would be as well. You know, one of the first things that I looked at. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say it's um it's interesting that you say that. Just sort of talking about being the only gardenarian in your family because British traditional Wicca is initiatory. It's oath bound. So I think that when you have a family member who's part of a practice like that and mm-hmm. and they die that leaves your family in total isolation as to how to respect your practices in depth. How do they respond to something that they never got to hear about? Um, my spouse is a, is a, a good example. He, he grew up in a situation where he was around gardenarians uh, that were part of his family, but he himself is not one. He, was, he married someone who's yeah. a gardenarian. Poor guy. He's, he's the island in the sea. um, I have two-year-old twins. I don't know how many people know that about me, but uh, um, it was not a good pregnancy. There's, you know, there's a high mortality rate associated with, uh, you know, giving birth in the first place, least of all with twins and least of all with some conditions I have. So there were points where I was really worried that I might not survive that pregnancy and it it made me think a lot about what it would be for me to die and for him to have to figure out how to honor my wishes. Right. And it, it really, it really hit hard that, that he wouldn't have really any way to figure out who to talk to to ask mm-hmm. how to be a part of anything what what does he do for me what what words does he say 
and being isolated yeah. in grief is it's horrible. So I wanted to make something for someone like him, someone who had a loved one that was part of a tradition that they can't necessarily look up online and find what they need. But then you have to bridge that gap between what's oath-bound and what isn't and what what we can make that is sensible for that kind of person while also being okay for the public to have. So that, that was a whole... Yeah, it was a whole challenge for me, but um, in the end, I'm really proud of of what I wrote. And um, I'm not an author. I definitely am not. I sort of stumbled backwards into it, but um, I did my best <laughs> to do to do the thing that nobody is supposed to do. I know you're supposed to be really focused on a particular audience, but I tried to write a book to everyone, to non-pagans, yeah. to funeral professionals, to clergy, to all these different faith traditions. I mean, my God, there are even Christian funerals in, in this book. I, I wanted everyone to pick this book up and find something that they could use in it. Absolutely. And you, I mean, you lay it out beautifully because you address each one in its own way, in its own chapter. And I think that's really necessary because you know, when grief hits, when, when, you know, you lose someone, and I love the, and there's other stuff that you did in the book that I love that I'll, I'll get to, but, you know, the fact that somebody could say, okay, she was this, and go to that in the book and see it and mm-hmm. say, okay, this is what we're supposed to do, for me is a great comfort. You know, I specifically got certain tattoos put on my body you know, because I always had this fear, you know, having been raised by a person who was Wiccan, who then converted to being a Pentecost. <laughs> it's a crazy life. Um, you know, I wasn't sure if folks would understand what to do with me unless I at least had some pretty significant markings on my person. But now that I have this book, it's like, oh, okay, the gods will know which way I'm supposed to go now. So it's kind of cool, you know, and I'm I'm really so happy to finally have this book. I, it's, I know it was a labor of great intensity for you, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you poured your heart and soul into it because this book is so necessary. And, you know, when you're young, you think – you're not going to need something like this. And you may not need it for you, but you may need it for somebody you care about. It's a, a difficult time. When someone passes that you love, you're not thinking about all of the things necessarily that they would want because you're, you're in the middle of your own grief. And I just love mm-hmm. that there is this guide to what to do for folks. And I, I just think it's so beautiful. You know, one of the first things when you open the book, and I know this might seem odd to other folks, but I really related to this because it's uh, it's the quote, if you don't know how to die, don't worry. Nature will tell you what to do on the spot. And then it goes on. But I wonder if other people also have that thought about, you know, well, what ha- you know, what do I do? And it's like you don't have to worry about what to do. It'll all just happen. And that, mm-hmm. to me, put it in mind of, of like, you know, being on the same side as birth because, you know, we arrive, sometimes we have glimpses of previous lives, but, you know, the whole experience of coming into being in this particular plane is not something most folks readily remember just as passing through is not something I imagine that we will readily remember wherever it is we go. Do you have any thoughts about that? Where we go? Yeah. uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts about the fact that we have no idea how we kind of got here, you know, except through biology and, but the spiritual aspect of it, it's like, Consciousness, what happens to consciousness is a really big thing, I think, for folks to grasp as far as birth and death. I do have some feelings about that, and I'm guessing you have not made it to that chapter yet. But I have I, not, uh, so I go, yeah. I go, <laughs> I go into it in depth 
in a, in a chapter called The Underworld, um, I feel like there's a lot of answers to that question. And okay, there's cool. no simple yes, no, this, that, or the other. I'm I'm a huge nerd. That's, <laughs> I just put that on the table. I'm, I am a huge nerd. I'm fascinated with things like uh, string theory and quantum theory and those sorts of things. Um, the many world theory, the idea that every possibility exists and that for every outcome, there's an equally measurable universe to contain it. For example, if you pulled out into traffic today and narrowly avoided having a head-on collision, there is some other existence in which you died. But there's no way that your consciousness will allow you to understand that death, so your consciousness creates a new universe in which it continues to live, basically. That's that's the complicated idea of that theory. But the idea that we spin these universes off of us constantly, I think, is, is so beautiful and interesting, like, like mm-hmm. mushrooms growing on a forest floor. But if, if you dig oh. into those ideas about about quantum theory and string theory and those ideas that that so many worlds exist. I think much the same, every afterlife you can imagine also exists. And it's what you believe and what you connect with that exists Mm -hmm. for you because you have created it. And that's really, that's, that's the beautiful power of consciousness, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, the idea that we could be in multiple on multiple planes and, you know, because I've thought that because I've had a number of near misses or maybe it's near hits. It was an actual miss. Um, You know, my mind does go off and wonder, well, if this happened and you try to like follow the thread to its logical outcome. And it's interesting because sometimes, and maybe this is my connection to that other that other universe, as it were, where it's like I can't imagine what happens afterwards because it's happening somewhere else. So right. I, and, I kind of grok that. You talked about being diagnosed as a child with a terminal illness somewhere in some universe. You didn't make it. This is the universe in which you survived. It's so weird, though. Because I wasn't supposed to by any measure. All of the things that I wasn't supposed to be able to do, from everything from live past 21 to have children, I've done all of these things. And it's odd because I know I've died before. (laughs) And probably multiple times in multiple ways because – in certain, you know, families, there are people who who kind of don't want you there. So there are realities for them, too. Isn't that so? Or, or does that make sense where you actually did not make it or did not exist? So it's really interesting to follow all of these different threads. Would you like me to read you a passage from that chapter that sort of gives a little more about my thoughts? Yes, please. I would love that. When it comes to an afterlife, the underworld, as it were, or the many halls of the deities that we hear tell of in so many legends, myths, and cultures, that is string theory to me. A thousand worlds that we can feel but cannot touch. Past lives, memories of other places and times, a well of creation from which all things might derive. That's a little harder to explain, but I'll try. For those of you who are not familiar with the Akashic Record, it's an idea espoused by some that there is a non-physical plane of existence upon which all of human existence has been recorded. All our thoughts, feelings, words, actions, and so on marked there for all of eternity. I'm not quite certain I believe that, but I'm also not certain that it's entirely wrong. Nobel Peace Prize winner, integral theorist, and If it means anything to you, classical pianist Dr. Irvin Laszlo preferred to conflate the idea of the Akashic Record with that of the zero-point field theorized in quantum physics, a known force that remains unproven outside of theory. Essentially, there is, at the bottom of all things that we know as reality, a flat plane from which all things come, 
and to which all things must return. Dr. Laszlo referred to this hive of energy as the original source of all things, the birthplace of all things, a great cosmic mirror of existence, a churning cauldron of eternity, the womb of time, a sea of energy giving birth to the very stars. I don't know about you, but I find that beautiful. Once on a national public radio broadcast, comedian and satirist Aaron Freeman stated that you should have a physicist speak at your funeral, stating, You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was ever her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid the energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And at one point, you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell them that all the photons that ever bounced off your face, all the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist tell her, that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors of her eyes, that those photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much of all our energy is given off as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it, and he will tell them that the warmth that flowed through your life is still here part of all that we are, even as we who mourn continue the heat of our own lives. You'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope that your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know that your energy is still around. According to the law of conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. Wow. That's amazing and true. (laughs) And comforting. I think... I don't know if people are ready to hear that, but I think it's amazing, and I hope it comforts somebody who's listening, who's lost someone, because of all the people that have been lost so recently. I think also, I I find a great deal of comfort in fact. They, They... definitely bring me happiness in hours when everything seems chaotic but after that passage I turn right around and and tell you what it was like when I died and and what I remember the underworld to be so I'm not without my own contradiction and I'm not without the Mm. belief that there's innumerable quantities of places that we might find ourselves wow interesting so did you go somewhere specific? Specific as in a place I can recall? Yes. Specific as in a place I could name? No. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. I just, you know, so few of us actually know someone who has any kind of a recollection or that experience. So I think, you know, for me, when I hear, when I hear you speak of it, for me, it's comforting because when that place or when this instance happens again, it will not be such a foreign 
thing or a frightening concept necessarily. I just find that, you know, the fear of the unknown can wreak havoc on our daily lives if we focus too much on it. And as somebody who sometimes obsesses over death, for me to have you read that and and say those words and have this book um, has really eased my mind about what's next. Well, see, if and that's I think that's all that this book, if that's all it ever does, it was worth it. If it brought you comfort, just you. It's, uh, well, and I, I sincerely doubt it's just me, but... Yeah, no, the book the book has has been something that I have needed and wanted and didn't know where to find and I just cannot tell you how much having it means to me that that I can say here, read this and we can make a plan because you do address planning ahead in the book too. I do. Which no, go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, I try and delve a bit into what you need to do and think about and figuring out who your next of kin actually is. That can be a little opaque and um, what you need to do to make sure that your wishes are honored truly when you die. Do you find that oftentimes people, pagans who don't have someone like them in their family kind of, ignore that aspect of them? Yes. I guess it's a simple answer. I mean, I think that when families... If if I died tomorrow and my parents were my next of kin, they're not, but if they were, um, I mean, they'd, they'd bury me in Christian and, and call me that and never, ever shine a light on the fact that I wasn't. But that isn't the fact because, well, legally my next of kin is my spouse, but uh, I've also made arrangements for exactly what my my funeral will look like. But I think the bigger problem is that if people broadly, I think, feel like planning makes it real, and I think there's this idea that if you're a young person and you're planning for your death, then you must you might be suicidal or you might have um, concerns about your life and you wouldn't want to make people worry about you. But I think it's really healthy to to plan for death and think about those things. Like I said, I've, I've participated in burials of people who never took a breath, infants who were stillborn, people in their mm-hmm. teens and 20s. You can die at any age, at any moment of anything. I helped embalm a person who had gone out for groceries, got out of their car, walked up to their front porch, put the key in the door and unlocked it, took one step into their house from flat ground with their one bag of groceries, tripped, and died. They broke their neck on the floor. That person was not even 30 years old. It just... Human beings are terrifyingly fragile while also being amazingly resilient. I read stories like uh, there was a woman whose name I can't recall, but she fell from an uh, from an airplane that was crashing at height, like thousands of feet. She plummeted, still seatbelted into her seat and landed in a swamp. Not only did she survive that, but she had a broken leg and nobody found her for like five days and she survived all of that. But you could trip to death. In your front door. So strange. It's so seemingly random. I mean, it's beautifully random, though. I think sometimes when people are told that they have something that will kill them, that they stop living, which is why I don't want to know anything else. You know, I was already set up to... (laughs) set up to die early and I think it kind of because when you're young and you're told that you don't necessarily believe it and I didn't I don't know if I would have that same resiliency now 
to not believe it. And I just find that I'm not willing to encourage death in that way by preparing for it that extensively. I mean, I would want to prepare for my death rights. That's not the same thing. I think you don't need to be dying to do that. I think it's a wise decision to make. When my father passed, my mother made all of her arrangements, and he's been dead for 20 years. So it's like it was just a smart thing to do. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you are anticipating death in such a way, I find that some people just decide to stop living. And it does come at, you know, it does come at any moment. You could have cancer, but you could be in a car crash, which takes you out well before the cancer does. You know what I mean? So it it is a somewhat random, it can be a random thing. I know a lot of people don't believe it's a random thing um, and that we are predestined. And I don't know, I waffle back and forth on that. I think that I don't know. It, it's it's funny for me because I've I've had the experience of dying. I've had the misfortune of being in some situations where I I definitely thought I was going to die. Situations where I wasn't safe or, or something happened. Um, but I've found that that planning for death and being prepared for it has really given me a ton of comfort, especially with a spouse and children, you know, knowing I have that manila envelope pasted over the desk that has my will in it and all my documents and my insurance and all that stuff. So, you know, they know what's up. Nobody has to be afraid of it. The monster has been dragged out from under the bed. It's it's hanging on the pegboard. I think that, Taking the time to at least fill out an advanced directive, which, my God, it's a one-page sheet you can print off the Internet and answer a couple questions on with a pencil and sign it, scan it, and give it to a friend, a, you know, a couple friends. It's free. It's simple. It's easy. You don't have to do anything other than that. And with that one piece of paper, you've guaranteed who gets to be in charge of your funeral, who gets mm-hmm. to make those decisions for you. Who gets to make decisions if you wind up on life support? You know, maybe your next of kin is not someone who you would choose. You know, what if you're a a 20-year-old pagan and you're a member of the LGBTQ community and uh, you have a partner that you love, but maybe you're not married and and your parents are fundamentalists or whatever. And if you die today, if you take your last breath, those parents decide. And maybe your partner doesn't even get to be at your funeral. Yeah, that's, I was in a situation yeah. once where we had um, a body that had been donated to science, and the the parents had some wishes about how the person's body be prepared at the end of things. Mm-hmm. And this particular deceased was a trans woman, and they mm-hmm. wanted her hair to be cut and wanted her to be dressed in a suit. Um, and of course they were next of kin and they were responsible for for this woman's wishes uh, being carried out they were responsible for what her funeral looked like um, they got to make those choices and the only thing I was able to do was to just refuse to fulfill them and walk out and that's a tough spot yeah. to be in who do you serve, the dead or the family and I realized in that moment I served the dead yeah. Fuck a family if they're going to be yeah, right. <laughs> I'm out. I True enough. Life. Fire me. Die mad about it. I don't have to be here. <laughs> That's a colorful phrase to use in this particular instance. But, yeah, um, I just, you know, you can't reclaim somebody. And maybe I'm wrong about this. But someone who's living their authentic self, I would think, has the right to be honored once that passing has happened. And the fact that some people think they can reclaim you back into what they wanted you to be, I find so horrendously insulting. 
Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are other folks who would acquiesce to those wishes. And thank you for not being one of those people. I, I just I couldn't I couldn't bear it. It was all so cruel. And they wrote they wrote an obituary that misgendered this individual and just skipped over these huge swaths of their life. And maybe this is silly. I probably shouldn't share this, but I uh, I went home. I was so angry, and uh, I sat home and looked at this person's social media and looked at what their life was, and I, I wrote an obituary for them that I thought would be correct. And Aww. after they were buried, I went I went by myself to their gravesite and looked at the tombstone with the wrong name on it, and I said the name that they preferred yeah. and spoke it to the gods for them and made an offering. And you see how much it bothers me? I'm tearing up thinking about it, but I... Um, yeah. You know, it took a moment to let them know that I you saw them who they were. And you gave them a great honor by doing that. And I wish there were so many more of you to be able to do that for them. Because I've known a lot of folks for the decades who have transitioned. And, you know, when a tragedy happens, have that horrible error made and have to feel like I have to fix it. Um, and sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. Um, but when I can, I, I, I know what you're feeling. It's, it's, um, it's very difficult to watch someone who can't stand up and say, no, this is who I am be dishonored in that way. So thank you for doing things like that. See, this is this is part of why you're so important to the community, um, all the communities really, because you don't – you serve all of our communities. I mean, no matter whether it's the trans community or, you know, any of our genderqueer brothers and sisters and – you know, pagans and Wiccans and Gardnerians, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate everything you do um, because I was, you know, there was a moment when you and I first started talking um, a couple of years ago where I thought, oh, my goodness, finally there's somebody that can, if something happens to me sooner than later, you know, obviously before your book came out, that I was grateful that there was somebody that was available to like talk to my family if necessary and make sure things went a certain kind of way. Um, so, you know, your heart for what you do and how you serve is really beautiful and rare. Um, you know, I only know of maybe one other person uh, who was somewhat similar to you and out of, you know, Hundreds of thousands of pagans, you know, that's a that's a pretty rare gem that you are. So I just wanted to thank you for being there. Well, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I mean, obviously, it's important to me. So I'm being horribly selfish. I'm not, I'm nothing special. Like, this is important to me because, you know, when I took that deep dive into the underworld as a little girl, I I met a a figure there who you know, had me make some promises about what my life would be. And it was going to be a life of service and it was going to be a life of making hard choices. And like I joked before, you call it a career that overestimates my ability to draw a paycheck because I'm not very popular in the scenes in the funeral community, actually. Um, So maybe I'll never like work at a funeral home, but, you know, whenever a family needs me to be there for them, I will be. Which is amazing. And the fact, I mean, talk to me a little bit about the whole, you know, being able to make a living part of it. How difficult must that be? Because your services are obviously needed. And I know you've done a whole lot of volunteer work as far as, you know, you you worked during the pandemic, did you not? I did. Um, I'd made myself available to the 
the State Department of Health and Human Services, the Medical Reserve Corps, and the National Funeral Directors Association as a volunteer. All were desperate enough to take uh, recent graduates and students at that time. But most Mm -hmm. states have uh, a program not unlike nurses or doctors where, you know, you finish school and you go into a residency program and then you complete your licensure and you go on to get hired and blah, blah, blah. But, but it's that's sort of a system. not necessary, is it? <laughs> a, no, not really. Is that, it's really okay, a system. Okay. Set, it's set up in a way that, that it makes it easy for the industry to shut out people that they don't like by just basically being like, well, if nobody offers them a space to do their residency hours or whatever, then, well, they can never go on to complete their licensure. So that's sort of, that's the hell I'm living in right now especially since I, I had a, re- a recent situation where a, a, uh, a medical examiner, a deputy med- medical examiner in another state, like way far away, um, mm-hmm. found me online. And they were disturbed by the fact that um, they said it was not about my religious beliefs or my uh <clears throat> gender identity or my sexuality, but that it was more about uh, the fact that I call myself a necromancer and work with human remains and that sort of thing. But they were disturbed by this. So they reached out to the state licensing board and uh, state associations and national associations and all these things, and they were like, they they basically outed me as as a witch um, to all these boards. So... That has caused a whole lot of problems for me, actually. So, yay, fun. Oh, my goodness. Is there anything that the public can do to assist in this regard? Well, hey, if you if you have a good friend who works at a funeral home, tell them to call me up. <laughs> That's very silly. Not really, though. No. I mean, no, writing. No, it's not silly. I mean, if. If any of the if any of the listeners happen to know of someone who might be looking for exactly what you are and what you do, hey, hit hit me up on Desperate House Witches and I'll direct you right to Mortellus. Not a, I mean, any help is appreciated in this regard. I mean, I think it's horrifically unfair that somebody who offers a very credible service is being denied entry into the field by people who can just willy-nilly decide they don't like you. That is very true of many industries, especially, you know, the funeral industry is uh, desperately overregulated, deeply uh, deeply needs deregulation, like like the lovely state of Colorado has made that choice. Um, they don't they don't use the same kind of regulatory processes as other states, which is great, actually, because... Um, it's the only state in the United States where we have open air cremation. Think Viking mm-hmm. funeral, uh, funeral pyres. Um, they can do those things because they're not overregulated. But um, when we have systems where it's an industry that has been so uh, controlled for so long by by a particular type of person, let's pretend that I don't mean old white Christian guys. <clears throat> Okay, I'll pretend. <laughs> Let's pretend that is sure. Yeah, I mean, if you don't reflect who they are and what their their values are, then you you could essentially be shut out forever. But all that yeah. to say, you know, screw it. If if all I do for the rest of my life is volunteer work and showing up as clergy for families and showing up behind the scenes for families and and helping with home burials, I'm happy to do that. You know, just being part of the conversation is important. Getting people thinking about it is important. Doing the work on the ground is important. I care a lot less about making a paycheck than I do about being there for families. And that's wonderful. But I do have to ask a practical question because I think it's something that people shy away from from knowing or, or asking. What is an appropriate amount of money to pay someone who has come and, and assisted in the manner that, of which you're speaking? Because I think people really have no idea of what an appropriate 
offering, uh, for lack of a better term, or fee perhaps, would be. Oh, and I think maybe if folks had this, an idea of, you know, what's involved, um, that they would be a little more prepared with something other than a hot meal because you do have to put food on your own table. So if you can give me some ideas, that would be, I think that would be appreciated by the listeners as well. So I can say some words at that, but most of them will be wrong forever. Um, Obviously that would vary (laughs) by state and country and whatever, what would be expected would be deeply dependent on who that professional was and what they were offering you and where you live, of course. Um, pretty commonly in my state, uh, an honorarium for clergy is somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 um, mm-hmm. for if you called in uh, a funeral person to, to help you with things, doing preparatory work and so on. Oh, gosh, anywhere from 200 to to $1,000. But big asterisk at the end of that, I don't charge anyone anything. Um, I don't believe in it. I think that um, I, I personally feel that I have an obligation to make services and knowledge available to everyone, even if they can't afford it, especially if they can't afford it. So I just have a donate link on my website, and um, if people want to do that, they can. If they don't, I don't expect it at all. Um Whenever I do workshops, if you guys see a workshop that you're interested in, people listening, um, if -hmm. you can't afford the cost, I always have a code available where you can just sign up for free without anyone knowing that about you. Um, Just look in the FAQ on my website. I I, I really do think it's, it's not something I expect other people to feel like they have to do, but for me personally, I feel an obligation to make that available. And that's wonderful, and and I cannot tell you how much that is appreciated because that is really giving of your heart and soul and time and money because it's not like you're floating to a service without using gas in your car. But I did <laughs> want to at least get – well, I mean, I think it's important to at least throw out some kind of an estimation – that would be fair and reasonable just so, I mean, because it's something that people don't talk about and, you know, even a small guideline, I think um, of what's, uh, what could be considered appropriate is at least a jumping point. I mean, as you've said, you know, out of the generosity of your, your spirit that you would, you know, be willing to, you know, let folks have free classes or, you know, that you would show up and assist the families. That's lovely. But I think folks who who do have some means, let's let's share. <laughs> let's let's do the right thing, you know. If somebody comes and does this at a very tough time and helps you, you know, some kind of some kind of an offering is appropriate. And uh, I encourage that whenever possible. Well, for- For me, I don't care where somebody is in the world. If they want me to come be there for someone who's dying or assist by, you know, offering ritual or services for a funeral or whatever their needs are, I'll come to you. Just make sure there's food for me and somewhere I can sleep. And if I need a plane ticket, you know, that's an issue. But um, I'm, I'm always happy to do it. I think money corrupts. And when I erase an expectation of income from what I'm doing and offering, especially as clergy, then I'm able to assess the situation from a more meaningful standpoint than just using to mm-hmm. do things for income. And I think that's that's more important to me as a person. Oh, I completely understand. I completely understand. Um, but as somebody who is not does not have your capabilities my only way of i mean and of course if it were one of if if i were the spouse of someone i would at least want to know what the correct beginning recompense would be just because that's how i was raised you know people provide a service and you should pay for it i mean you're you're extremely generous and and i'm sure everyone listening um 
is appreciative that you're that resource. But for me, it's like make sure you have this number, you know, at least this amount for this person who has really done hard work to get here. Because what you do is not easy. And I'm very, you know, you opened my eyes when we were first talking about the pandemic, you know, previous show. And, you know, we talked about the fact that, you know, the heroes always get the hot meal, but the folks who deal with your loved ones after they've passed don't get that same kind of respect. And that really stuck with me. Um, So I, I try to do as much honor as possible to the folks who maybe do not get the recognition they deserve or even the, the care they deserve. So, you know, you really opened my eyes to a lot of things and I'm just very appreciative of you for that. And, and I feel like, yeah, when the time comes, I'm going to make sure it will be in my papers, you know, that, you are provided, you know, the meal, the transportation, you know, an appropriate recompense now that you've given me an idea, you know, I mean, yeah, I want to make sure that those things are arranged for me because I will feel better about it. It's not because you're asking, it's because it will make me feel like I took care of things. Well, if you want me to be there for you when that time comes, it would be my honor. Well, I would be honored. Um, you know, there's a couple of other things that you had. Well, I mean, first of all, the book is a necessity, period. But you also put in a couple of things that I was really happy to see because you do address the passing of a child. And I've known folks who have not in the distant past have gone through this. So, you know, I, I wanted to thank you for addressing that in the book, you'll have to buy the book, people, Um, and unexpected death, Uh, you know, I mean, I just, I'm so, you really tried to include everything in this book, and I, you're brave, I think you're really brave, because you don't shy away from any of the hard subjects, and I'm just really grateful to have this book, And I want to encourage folks to get it because there is something for everybody in it. But how hard was that to talk about? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. Um, So there are a few things that that I could tell tell your listeners today that they might not know about me. Um, First of all, I love writing poetry and ritual, and it's just not something I get to share a lot. So this book was... Uh, an opportunity to share um, those those parts of me with the world. So I was excited to, excited is a strong word, I guess, but um, being able to share poetry like like the poem on page 240. Uh, if you have the book beside you, you'll see what I mean. I do. Um, Going to it now. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Okay. I've, I've spoken about this in the past, but I, I survived a sexual assault as a child, And um, that affected me in a way I did not realize until I was an adult, but it left me nearly impossible to, it it made it nearly impossible for me to have children. Um, So when I got pregnant with my oldest child, um, I was essentially told that I may not be able to carry her to birth and that if I didn't at least try, I may never have children. So there was that mm-hmm. fear that that it was always going to be a loss at any moment. And after she was born, they told me that, you know, this is it. You're, you're never going to have more kids. The, the scarring is too vast. And um, so, you know, that was that was my thought process as I went on through my life. And I never particularly intended to have children in the first place, so that's kind of where I was. Um, and then I, you know, I got older I I met someone really important to me. We got married and, um, well, surprise, surprise. I realized one day I was pregnant. Yeah. I tell my spouse, we take the test, we do all the things and it lasted just long enough for us to be excited. Then we lost it. 
and uh, it was so devastating. Yeah. And I wrote that poem for them. Mhm. That that ritual so personal to me and was so hard to put on these pages, really, because it's so raw. But we decided to take a risk and try. And we had a total of seven miscarriages, which was such a tough period of time. Yeah. Just feeling just steeped in death. We, we I identify as non-binary, but I was assigned female at birth. And there's this expectation that if you occupy a female body that you're a creator you give life and I felt like I was steeped in death that not only was my work death my calling was death but that all I could bring into the world was death and it was hard yeah and then the happy end of that story is that I had we had twins and they're they're beautiful and horrible and I was changing diapers before the call but (laughs) 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 but I think there there's this tendency to shy away from this carriage and not look it in the face. And I think um listeners out there there's a there's a ritual in there for processing the grief that can come after abortion. Even if it was something you knew was right for you. It there can still be yeah. grief and loss and and it's not fair that we look at parents who choose abortion as though they're not allowed to grieve. So die mad about that too, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for saying that because as someone who has had an abortion, um, I was always, you know, not only treated like a pariah by my own family, but um, the idea that I had done this, you know, especially in the Pentecostal family, (laughs) Um, you know, Mm -hmm. I would never recover and I, you know, was the worst human being that ever lived. So the fact that you included that was very meaningful for me, even though it's been a number of decades since I went through it, you know, that's still there in the back of my life. You know what I mean? It's still something that I think about. And I would just like to say to anybody who uh, would like to sit in judgment of of women who have abortions, nobody sets out to do it. Um, You know, the the idea that women use it as birth control is absurd and ridiculous. I'm sure it has happened, uh, but I will say that it is not something that 99.999% of, you know, the people who who need and I mean I had an abortion because I was being beaten by my ex-husband and we'd already had two children and I knew if I had a third I would never get away from him alive and that's why I had it um so you know the guilt that I was given for for taking that path was just like unbelievable so thank you for telling me that it's okay that I can have feelings about it even though some people, like you said, will need to die mad about it. So, yeah. You know, you know, I write in that chapter, it is nobody's place to tell you when is the right time to grieve or when is the right time to have a ritual or a funeral. So take that time for yourself if you need it. Decades don't matter. Grief is real and deserves to be honored and processed. And I think that it's so important, especially if we're on the, the topic of abortion, to really take a moment to to say out loud that it's it's okay to be sad about a right choice. Yeah. A choice can be correct and still cause pain. I didn't like vi- voting for Joe Biden. It was still the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> a little different, but yeah. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> you know. I like it back up. We should bring some humor into the table, but yeah, we we don't. Yeah. Being, I, I I hate this this situation we're in where women or or feminine or or 
anybody, and you know, screw it. Third gender out with the bathwater. People are allowed. Yeah. To feel pain for those choices. We Thank can you. No one right. ever said that to me. Yeah, I, you know, and, can, and no one has ever made space for that, and and that's awesome that you do that. It's necessary. It was about goddamn time. Agreed. Totally agree. You're just, wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> I want to start crying again, but <laughs> I'm going to hold I it also, together I, for the next couple of minutes. <laughs> I also... I also don't want to make like a weird segue between children and this topic, but can we stop acting like it doesn't matter if someone's pet dies? That's, that's also important. Like yeah, if you can spend 20 you. years with a dog and they die and then like you're, yeah. you try and call into work and it's like, oh, it was your dog. Like who cares? Companion animals are such a huge part of our lives and they give us so much. And we know Psychology tells us that people grieve companion animals exactly like any other human person in their life. So we have to make room for that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how disposable life seems to be for some people. I mean, we've really kind of gotten away from, I think, our own humanity sometimes. You know, people... I don't know. Sometimes that animal is the only love a person gets, you know? Mm-hmm. And and how are we judging this by saying because you don't have two legs instead of four that you don't count? I mean, that's really insulting. There were many years yeah. I only had my cat, you know, and he was... He was my companion and my friend and my confidant and, you know, that was it. That's who I had. I didn't have, you know, necessarily people I could confide in. I didn't have a lover. I didn't have, you know, accessible parents that would actually speak with me. I mean, there were moments all I had was this sweet little animal and myself. And, um, yeah, it counts. It all counts. If you love someone or something or some other sentient being, it matters. It does matter and should be great. And I'm, and I'm serious about this, too. I'll, I'll show up and perform a ritual for your goldfish if you want. If you love that goldfish and that goldfish is important, I'll love it, too. I mean that. Don't laugh. Wow. <laughs> I'm not. No, it's. You know, that's really, you're amazing. I just, I'm a huge fan of yours, obviously. I'm trying not to fangirl all over the place, but I, I do I do appreciate your attitude towards what you do and the comfort that you give because even though I haven't specifically needed your services yet, um, just having the book, knowing that I can reach out to you, if I have a question or an issue is so meaningful and, you know, while we're wrapping up, please tell folks where they can find you oh, and where they can get um, the book. Well, first of, first of all, I want to say thank you for your fangirling, but I'm, I'm pretty regular, but I do appreciate you rounding yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, if people are looking for me, um, if you type in a crow and the dead, pretty much anywhere you'll find me, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, Patheos Pagan. I have a blog of the same name. And you can find me at www.mortellus.com. Um, I have a shop there. A great way to support me, if that's something anyone's inclined to do, is by purchasing things from my shop. I've also got some donate links in my uh, FAQ, and there's some links for uh, participating in our community library project and, and other stuff we're doing. So you can find all that there. Um, if you're looking for me just as a, a, a person and not whatever entity I'm pretending to be, um, you can just find me as Mortellus on Facebook. But I promise I just post memes about D&D and make jokes about butts. It's really not all that special. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> All right, folks. The book is Do I Have to Wear Black? Um, and it is written by my wonderful guest, Mortellis. Uh, just as an FYI, Amy Blackthorne, the wonderful Amy Blackthorne, wrote the, the foreword of the book. Uh, Mortellis, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm hoping I can get you to come back on very soon. I would love that, of course. And while we're talking about Amy, I would I would love to take just a moment to say, definitely go check out yeah. her shop. Um, she's amazing yeah. people, and um, she, much to my extreme uh, surprise and pleasure, designed two tees inspired by me, a crow and the dead, and both are uh, delicious and associated with uh, spirit work and death work. So definitely go check those out as well. All right. Mattelis, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Of course. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. I will be back on Friday. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Oh, next week, Byron Ballard. So be there or be square. I'll talk to you then. Bye.